Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hi, this is the Cancer Liberation Project podcast. If you've been touched by cancer and have some fear around remaining healthy, you are in the right place. As a 20-year-plus cancer survivor, Haley knows how unsettling it can be to not only hear the words, you have cancer, but also the uncertainty and fear that comes when you have been declared cancer-free. The Cancer Liberation Project was born out of Haley's desire to make cancer less scary for people, to give people hope, that they can not only heal from cancer, but live their best, most vibrant life after cancer. Get ready to be inspired with your host, Haley Dubin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. Today, I'm sitting down with Dr. Dawn Lamon. Dr. Lamon is a board-certified medical oncologist and is a leader in the field of integrative oncology. She sees patients in her clinic in Ashland, Oregon, and consults with patients and physicians around the globe. She treats patients with chemotherapy and supports this treatment with individualized supplement, diet, fasting, and exercise regimens that enhance the effectiveness of these treatments. Dr. Lamont understands that a strong doctor-patient relationship is a vital part of care. She urges her established patients to call her with questions, concerns, and ideas. Dr. Lamont speaks by invitation domestically and internationally. She has authored articles on integrative oncology for peer-reviewed medical journals, textbooks, and the popular press. She maintains academic relationships with the University of Arizona and the National Institute of Integrative Medicine in Melbourne, Australia. I look forward to sharing my conversation with Dr. Lamont, but before I do, I just want to remind you If you're looking for some great cancer prevention tips, go to revivewellness.com. That's R-E-V-I-V-E, wellness.com, and click on free gift. Hi, Dr. Lamont. Welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. I'm really excited to have you here today. Hi, Haley. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm really happy to be here. Now, I know you were trained as a conventional oncologist, and I was just curious, what made you decide to get into integrative oncology? So I was trained as a a conventional oncologist and uh, uh, entered conventional medical school and went straight through everything that way. But all the the whole time, even before I entered uh, uh, medical school, I was really interested in, in how patients can affect their course with cancer? How can they, how can they make the treatments work better? How can they not get cancer in the first place as much as possible? Um, so that has been a lifelong interest for me. It wasn't something that I suddenly switched into. I do still practice conventional medical oncology. I, I do the usual things like chemotherapy and I work with my radiation oncology uh, uh, and surgical oncology uh, colleagues uh, to treat patients as a team. And um, I also incorporate uh, what we would call habits or exercise, diet, sleep, uh, stress control uh, routines into my patients' treatments. And we just weave it all in as one piece. It's not separate that you have to go over here for that and over there for the other pieces. We just we do it. I think that's so great. And do you feel like more people, more oncologists are getting into that? Absolutely. There is a push from the patients as, as uh, most medicine gets pushed from, from the patient side of things these days. And uh, so oncologists are starting to listen and uh, learning about these things and doing their, their uh, uh, research on uh, new ways of helping patients. So I think that this is, you know, people try to make a line between integrative or alternative and complementary and conventional and traditional and allopathic and naturopathic really the patients don't care what you call it. They just want to get better. And uh, so I think, uh, you know, we're, we're responding to that. Now, you know, 
I was just thinking, I had a client come to me yesterday that had a recurrence of breast cancer. And she said she's seeing an uh, integrative oncologist, but she doesn't feel like he's practicing any extra things. Basically, she'll ask him, you know, certain supplements. And, you know, he says no to everything. I was just curious, someone like that who had a recurrence, you know, has her tests and all that. Can you see someone like that and, and give them medical advice? So um, I think what you're asking is that uh, do we do I poo-poo the idea of uh, one particular piece of the puzzle uh, and say uh, no, you don't really need to do that. You know, honestly, sometimes I do, and what I mean by that is that there are really, really powerful things that patients can do on their own, and they don't need a doctor, and they don't even need a book. Really, you just need to do these things, and you have fought half the battle in terms of what you can do to get yourself well or to prevent cancer. And uh, I think a lot of times, uh, you know, and I have no idea of what's going on with with this particular patient or her integrative oncologist or what uh, his or her integrative or conventional credentials are if they're, a lot of people practice integrative oncology and have never been trained in oncology. Um, and, uh, you know, but they're doing it and, and more power to them. Maybe they're, they're actually, you know, doing, filling a need that patients perceive. But one of the things that I think is really important for patients to understand is that the idea that going to an integrative or complementary uh, practice means that what you're going to mainly get is a list of supplements that are going to help you is I think really dangerous. And the reason I, I say that is that not that there's anything wrong with supplements. Supplements are great. For most people, however, they do help, but they help about like this. And what a lot of patients need is really a whole lot more than that. And if you keep doing this and this and this, and that's what you do, you're not gonna get over the big obstacle or hump that you need to get over uh, if you have a, a diagnosis of a life-threatening illness. So, so I, um, I think that's what you're asking, you know, are, would I, uh, you know, steer a patient away from supplements? No, but I might steer them in other directions first and more strongly as I don't, I'm not, a, 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 you know, I'm not uh, wedded to supplements as a major part of uh, integrative oncology care. It's a part, but it's not the major part, which I think it is for a lot of practitioners. And I think it is in a lot of patients' minds. Got it. Got it. And is this someone, you know, you can see virtually if she just had questions for you, you know, how do you feel about me doing this or that? Is that something you do? Or are you just based in Oregon and, you know, that's- so if you're- I, I see patients from all over the world virtually, of course. Um, I have licenses in California, Oregon, and New York, so can um, uh, do everything in those states in terms of writing prescriptions, ordering tests, those kinds of things. Um, certainly, we do see a lot of patients uh, at a distance if they live far away. If a patient wants uh, comprehensive cancer care, for instance, they want me to do their chemotherapy and their, uh, you know, and also their integrative uh, program, then they really have to be here because, uh, you know, there are certain rules about me being within 20 minutes of a hospital that, uh, you know, that, uh, uh, and those kinds of things so that I can care for patients. So there are some limitations on what can be done from a distance. And another thing that I'm, I don't accept all patients. And one of the things that will uh, determine whether a patient is accepted into the practice is if, if I think that they're a good fit for uh, this type of work. And some patients are very much an excellent fit. And those patients you know, are, are, are a joy and we work with them with, and everybody is, you know, has a positive experience. And those patients tend to be people who like to think for themselves. They like to bring in articles uh, that they found uh, on their own to discuss and the ideas that they have regarding uh, new research or, or nutrition or, or, or anything that they want to discuss in terms of their particular care. Uh, they tend to be uh, questioners. They don't say, Hey doc, here I am. Uh, just tell me what to do. And um, uh, so when we get, uh, uh, or, or and they will provide their medical records. So it, it, one of the things that will we'll keep a patient out of our practice is if they don't provide medical records. So if somebody calls me up and says, hey, I just want to chat about, you know, what's going on with me. And I had breast cancer 10 years ago and, and now I want to make sure I don't get it again. 
can you help me? It's like, well, no, we need to see the records. We need to see perhaps you, if you're in the area at least, um, and we need to, to have details. Um, I think that uh, it's really important that patients understand they're just because they have a diagnosis that kind of ticks a box doesn't mean that they their breast cancer is anything like this other patient's breast cancer and that their integrative program is going to be anything like um, this other patient's uh, uh, integrative program. They might be very, very different. One person might need, you know, a high carbohydrate, low fat diet, and another patient might need a low carbohydrate, high fat, medium protein diet. There are all sorts of permutations uh, based on the type of tumor, the patient's genetics, the patient's lifestyle, age, other conditions. Uh, so many factors that play into what goes into personalizing a patient's treatment protocol. So we, we try to accept everybody, but we don't. And um, those are some of the limitations that we place uh, uh, on our practice. And do you do testing to figure out what is the best diet for them? To a certain extent, yes. Uh, uh, as much as uh, we can, we do. I don't believe that... Uh, you know, ticking off a box of a lot of vitamins and making sure that you're in the center of that box. Uh, and if you're too low, then filling it up, uh, you know, to get you into the center of the population is necessarily has any scientific backing or is necessarily helpful for a patient. It may be that you, your body doesn't do well with that particular vitamin. And just because the majority of the population has a level within this certain range and you're not there does not mean that we should absolutely fill that up and get you into the range where everybody else is. So I think that there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, superficial thinking and those kinds of testing. So I try to avoid that. But yes, we do do basic testing. I try to find out where, for instance, a patient is with their current diet. Uh, does their body like their current diet? Do they have a good insulin level? Do they have a good uh, hemoglobin A1C? In other words, glycosylated hemoglobin, are they able to process the amount of carbohydrates that they have in their diet right now? Are there uh, specific vitamin levels that are way out of range. For instance, we know that high B12 level is associated, whether it's causal or not, is not known yet, but it's associated with a higher risk of being diagnosed with cancer. And if you have cancer, a higher risk of dying of cancer. So an extra high B12 level is kind of a red flag. Usually people get there um, uh, with, you know, over-enthusiastic supplementation or a lot of different supplements, each of which has some B12, something like that. But um, uh, I do try to uh, 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 do some testing and uh, see what we can find out about how a patient's current diet is affecting them and then move from there. I don't have a diet that I have written down that I say, you know, this is called the, uh, you know, the longevity anti-cancer diet and everybody should be on that. No. Right. I, pe I think people do get fixated on that. You know, I have to go vegan. I have to go raw. And I love that individualistic approach. You made me think about the B12. What would you say is the optimal range for B12? Because I know doctors, even my, you know, I, my primary care was like, oh, you need to have higher B12 levels. So what would you say optimal range? So, again, it depends on the patient. Um, if the patient, uh, so they, first of all, when you go to have a blood test at a lab, the lab will have set their optimal range based on the population that they serve. So they will you know, take 100 patients and take a certain percentage of them and put them in the, uh, you know, the lowest and the highest in that percentage and make a range of quote unquote normal. So it's made up in a certain sense um, for that lab. And each lab is a little bit different. For um, some patients, some patients will have B12 deficiency symptoms when they're within that normal range. So for those patients, you have to move their level up a little bit until the deficiency symptoms are resolved. For other patients, uh, uh, you know, they could be below the normal range and have no symptoms whatsoever. So again, I hesitate. I'm not going to give a number uh, because that doesn't make sense for uh, uh, anything except a textbook, which and nobody fits into a textbook. So you really look at each patient and see where they're, they need to be in terms of symptoms, in terms of any diagnoses, uh, if they have frank disease from low B12 or B12 deficiency, then of course you would treat that. But it's not, again, treating to a number. It's treating to patient and what they need. Having said that, uh, when I get a patient who has a, a, a B12 level that's way above uh, the end, top end of the normal range for their lab, we take a look at 
they're, why they're on that. Um, and we take a look at uh, uh, all of the supplements and see if we need to thin things out, especially if they have a diagnosis of cancer, which all of our patients do. Um, you definitely don't want to be hanging out in a high B12 range for a long, long time. That's good to know. Now, when we spoke earlier, you mentioned you approach cancer from a Darwinian point of view. So I'm assuming survival of the fittest. Can you, can you explain what you mean by that? So strictly speaking, Darwinian isn't survival of the fittest. It's, it is a uh, uh, reproduction and uh, whoever can reproduce is fittest. So whoever gets to pass on their genes to the next generation is by definition the fittest. It has nothing to do with how many push-ups you can do or, or whether you can run a marathon or not. That is not what fittest means in fitness means in Darwinian terms. It means, can you pass your genes on to the next generation? Whoever's best at that wins. Cancer cells are like other living uh, beings trying to pass their genetics on to the next generation of cancer cells. They're trying to uh, divide and multiply and uh, uh, make as many of themselves as they can. So, um, and in that process, uh, there are Darwinian principles of uh, uh, treatment resistance that start to arise. So you can have a pop when you start treating a cancer patient, most of the cancer cells are sensitive to whatever treatment you start to use that's appropriate for that particular cancer. However, there are always in the minority, a few cell cancer cells that are resistant to that treatment just from the get go for various reasons. It might be genetic. It might be because they're tucked behind another organ where the chemotherapy or pills uh, in the bloodstream can't get to them very easily. So they're kind of protected in a physical sense, um, or it might be an epigenetic phenomenon. In other words, they've turned on genes that can pump out uh, chemotherapy drugs from the cancer cell really quickly. There's a cost to fitness, uh, excuse me, to being able to uh, uh, resist treatment though. So instead of for instance, using all of the food energy that comes through the bloodstream to just divide and make more DNA and make more cancer cells, those resistant cells have to take some of that food energy and turn it into little cellular pumps that pump out the drug. Or, or um, if they're hiding behind uh, another organ, they're not getting quite as much of uh, uh, nourishment because the blood flow there isn't as great. They're going to have to kind of um, you know, deal with the fact that they're not going to have enough energy to, to grow very well. Um, so at the beginning of a cancer treatment scenario, the patient comes in, they have a tumor, you, you pick the right drugs for that patient and you give that to them. All of the cancer cells that are sensitive to that drug are going to die off right away within one, two, three, three or four rounds of that particular treatment. You're pretty much done. After that, the only cells that are left are the ones that are resistant. Maybe they're tucked behind a little organ or uh, they've, got their, uh, they've got the right genes or they've turned on some genes that give them resistance. Now they have no competition from their fellow cancer cells who are all dead from this treatment. So that's called competitive release. And boy, do they really start to grow then. We see that a lot. And I know you will have seen this in, in your friends who have uh, some of the cancers, especially of old age, like uh, uh, postmenopausal breast cancer, lung cancer, pancreatic cancer, colon cancer. You see them going through several rounds of chemotherapy and then it, uh, the, the treatment effect, the scans start to kind of level off. Everybody's happy at first, the tumor's shrinking, eh? Uh, but then things level off and then things start to get worse again and they get worse pretty quickly. And then what the oncologist does is change treatments, try to pick another drug that maybe these previously resistant cells will now be susceptible to. Um, so, you know, they'll pick a different drug that has a different mechanism of action. And that cycle will be repeated two or three times. It usually the time frame is shorter each time. And eventually uh, treatments just don't work very well or the patient has so many side effects, they have to stop. And that's kind of the end of the road for that patient. Um, things don't go well and they die. So treating with Darwinian principles means trying to use that particular uh, set of scenarios to work with the cancer and work with evolution to just keep the cancer suppressed enough so the patient has few or no symptoms, but not try to smash that cancer uh, and the cancer tumor markers and the scan results into the lowest amount of cancer possible. In other words, uh, uh, trying to make the scans as pretty as possible. You try to make the patient's condition as good as you can while still leaving some cancer cells there. 
hopefully some susceptible cancer cells. Then you stop the treatment for a little while. Then you, when the, and the cancer will start to grow back, but it should be mostly sensitive, treatment sensitive cells. And then when it grows back to where the patient's starting to be symptomatic again, then you treat again a little bit, but not too much. And, uh, uh, and you just repeat that cycle, that pattern, trying to keep the cancer uh, uh, below the radar of symptoms for that particular patient. And that's a, a very theoretical and now very, very uh, preliminary in, in clinical trials uh, uh, way to look at uh, cancer treatment. And I think that, um, you know, there are several centers that are doing that. Uh, there's University uh, South Florida and Tampa at Moffitt Cancer Center. There's the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, there is uh, the Mayo Clinic branch at Arizona uh, in, in Phoenix, um, Arizona. And uh, so I think that uh, and Arizona State University is collaborating with them with some really interesting and fascinating theoretical work in this regard. And um, so I think that over the next 10, 20 years, that's a big direction that cancer research will be taking. And it won't be so much looking at, you know, trying to find a new drug that's going to cure cancer because that approach has really completely failed. Even with our newest and greatest drugs, it's just not happening. Um, so using the drugs that we have, but in a smarter, more strategic way, uh, using Darwinian principles may allow us to, to uh, prolong the life of patients and possibly cure some that are not considered curable at this point. I was curious if, you know, I know you said you could separate the chemo treatments a little bit, you know, maybe going longer. What about lessening? Do you, you know, do you ever just do a smaller dose of the chemo? So the idea with the, the Darwinian uh, uh, therapy, uh, one of the types of Darwinian therapies called adaptive therapy is to use the smallest dose possible and as infrequently as possible. So, uh, you know, rather than, you know, there was a similar idea that was popular 20, 30 years ago called metronomic chemotherapy. And the oncologist would give a low dose, but once a week. With adaptive therapy, you don't really care about the week so much. That's an artificial construct made up by a calendar, by a, you know, and, and that's not, it has nothing to do with the growth rate of the cancer. So you, you pay attention to the growth rate of the cancer. Patient's cancer is growing really slowly. Maybe you only have to treat, you know, a couple of times a year and for one or two very short, uh, 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 you know, one or two doses. Um, so I think that, uh, uh, you know, those are, those are, New scheduling and and dosing uh, will be a is a large part of this uh, this framework. Now, what is one piece of advice you would give to a newly diagnosed patient? Get a second opinion, and get a second opinion far far away geographically from your first opinion. And the reason for this is, if you get a second opinion, and I see this all the time, you know, oh, I've got this diagnosis, so I'm going to go see this other doctor down the hall in the same practice, same, same specialty, and ask them if they agree with the first doctor's opinion. Doctors are human. If that first doctor is the second doctor's boss, they're not going to feel perhaps no matter how much they want to, you know, it's just human. You're not going to disagree as strongly uh, if you do have a disagreement uh, in terms of the patient's uh, care and recommendations that you're going to make to that patient. Um, you're not going to disagree that strongly with your boss who's, you know, got control over your career. Um, even if you go across town, those kinds of issues still uh, pop up, even in the same state. So I tell people, go far away, get a, a second opinion, and make sure that opinion is in the same discipline. So a lot of times I'll have patients say, well, I, uh, you know, I saw a surgeon in, in, I'm making this up, okay, in, I don't know, Arkansas. <laughs> and uh, they said, do this, this, and this. And then so I called up my brother-in-law, who's a gastroenterologist in Florida, and he said, oh, no, 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 don't do that. Make sure that you get, if you have a surgical opinion, you know, you need surgery, you need this kind of surgery, we need to take out this much bowel or leave that much and do this kind of rerouting of the plumbing. Make sure you get the same type of surgeon to do your second opinion so that you are comparing apples to apples. Um, so so that would be my main piece of advice to patients who've been diagnosed with cancer is right away, get a second opinion. Part of that second opinion needs to be a pathologic second opinion. When you are diagnosed with cancer, your surgeon isn't making that diagnosis. And I want that to sink in. I'm going to say that again. When you have a, an operation and surgeon takes out a tumor and comes back in the room, you know, a couple days later, says, oh, sorry, I have cancer. That surgeon didn't make that diagnosis. 
That diagnosis was made by a doctor you will never meet. They never meet patients, or almost never. Ologists, they work in the laboratory. The surgeon puts the specimen in a, in a cup, sends it to the path lab, and the pathologist takes it out, puts it on a table, and slices it up and looks at it under the microscope. All right? And that is who makes your cancer diagnosis. And I want, you know, I want people to really understand that. Those people are really, really smart and they can make mistakes or they can be flummoxed if it's something unusual that they don't see a lot of. So for instance, I had a case uh, recently where a patient did all the right things. She, she, she uh, uh, had gotten a, a second opinion uh, and uh, because the first pathologist said, well, this looks kind of funny. I'm not sure whether it's this or that. Uh, and uh, the second pathologist at some large distant institution did a good job, picked a good place to, to go, um, said, well, we're not sure if it's that or this. So she, the patient got a third opinion, all right? And the third opinion still said that. We're not really sure what this is, but it's because, you know, because it came from this particular part of the body, it's probably a breast cancer. So they put down breast cancer as diagnosis, right? And this patient just kind of felt funny about that. And she was all set and her oncologist, her surgeon said, yep, you've got breast cancer. And the oncologist, medical oncologist, that's my field, uh, went in and told her, yep, you need breast cancer uh, chemotherapy, which is this drug, this drug, and this drug. And um, she called me up and said, what do you think? And I read all of those pathology reports carefully. And, uh, and the only thing that I did at all was actually read them all and understand that they were all kind of flummoxed. So I sent this specimen off for a fourth opinion. And it turned out that this was not a breast cancer, this was a skin cancer. And the patient went to this uh, major institution where they were treating this particular type of skin cancer, got the right treatments, completely, completely different treatment than breast cancer chemotherapy, completely different. Had she gone for the breast cancer chemotherapy treatment, she would have died of her skin cancer because it wouldn't have worked. It wasn't the right treatment. So the, the, the multiple opinions, especially, uh, you know, keep going. If there's some question, if the, if the pathologists are hemming and hawing and saying, I don't really know, you know, what this is, um, keep going until you get one who, who, who really understands what they're looking at. And, and that can take some doing. That's not something that, you know, most patients, I wouldn't say that most patients can do that by themselves, but they should enlist the help of an oncologist who can help them do that. And every patient should read their own pathology report. Um, it, you won't understand most of it, uh, especially at first, you'll start getting used to it. But at first, it'll be a bit of gobbledygook, but you'll start to understand and you'll start to know what questions to ask, and you'll start to see what parts of the pathology uh, report your oncologist is using to develop a treatment plan for you. And you can ask them questions about that. You know, well, if it were, if this particular line in the pathology report was a little bit different, how how would you how would you treat me differently? Would that would that matter? So those are you can start having some pretty uh, deep conversations with your oncologist uh, uh, if you pay attention to the path report. But it's important for uh, cancer patients to number one, get a second opinion from the uh, specialty uh, with which from which the first opinion came and get that in a distant uh, place geographically so there aren't as many political pressures on the second opinion uh, provider. Um, and make sure that your second opinion also includes a review by a second pathologist at the new institution. That's such important advice. Now, I'm curious, do you have the actual biopsy and you get it sent or is it just the report that you send a second opinion to? So the biopsy, when you have a biopsy or you have an operation and some tissue is removed from your body, it's placed in a jar and uh, uh, in formaldehyde usually, and it's kept for seven to 10 years, depending on the state. There are state laws about how long these specimens have to be kept for just this reason, so that you can go back and have more testing done on the actual biopsy specimen if needed, if treatment, you know, if treatment has worked and you want to take another look, you know, is the diagnosis right? Why didn't this treatment work? Um, you can go back to the first specimen and, and take a look. So specimens are kept, absolutely, we're not talking about reports. We're talking about the actual tissue, the piece of tissue uh, from your body. It's kept in the laboratory for, for seven to 10 years. 
Okay. Got it. That is so helpful. Um, now I just was curious just to talk about a little bit about nutrition. You know, there seems to be so many mixed messages about sugar feeding cancer. Tell me how you, you view that. So cancer has to eat every cell in your body has to eat sugar feeds your normal cells too. So it's not that sugar is evil or that, uh, you know, cancer is particularly different from other cells. The difference is that many cancer cells, depending on who you ask, 80 to 95%, people have different opinions and no one really knows. And that's not an important question anyway, but most cancers um, uh, do tend to prefer glucose, blood sugar as their main fuel. Doesn't mean that they can't use the other two fuels, which are fat and protein, which has to first be changed into to glucose to be used as fuel. So most cancers do prefer to use glucose as fuel. So, you know, especially in the prevention arena, uh, cutting back on glucose in the blood, I'm not even talking about in the diet. I'm talking about in the blood, measuring the glucose in your blood every day, if you need to, getting it measured once every year or once every three years is laughably not helpful. Uh, just like sort of like uh, looking out your window once every three years to see what the weather is where you live. Uh, <laughs> that's probably not really going to uh, help you very much. Um, so knowing what your blood sugar is uh, most days and after and how your blood sugar responds to various meals is really important, especially in the prevention arena. Once you have a diagnosis of cancer, if your cancer lights up on a PET scan, that's a picture. A PET scan is a photograph of tissue using glucose. So if the PET scan shows a tumor, what it's actually showing is an area where in your body where glucose is being used um, 10 to 20 times more rapidly than other uh, fuels and in other areas of the body. So that tells that helps the doctor localize the uh, areas of tumor. So if a PET scan is positive, that's a really good clue to a patient that, you know, they really want to pay attention to their glucose levels and, and get them as low as possible, um, especially during moments of treatment. So if you're having uh, radiation, you really want to make sure your glucose levels are suppressed uh, pretty low uh, during that time. I don't want to go into exact numbers because I don't think that's appropriate. People will glom on to, you know, this is the number Dr. Lamont said, so no. Um, you want to work with your doctor to, to find a diet that gets your glucose uh, down to, to uh, levels that will help your, your uh, cancer treatments along. So you suggest getting a glucose monitor at home and, and checking it? I do. So I, uh, you know, people who are serious and maybe over the age of uh, 25 to 30 would want to know what their morning blood sugar is uh, most mornings before they eat or drink anything. And uh, probably the healthiest for most people is somewhere between 79 and 83 and then an hour to 90 minutes after a meal, you want to make sure it doesn't go over 120. Um, if it goes over 140, you're probably heading toward a kind of uh, pre-diabetic state. Um, but if you know that there's a particular meal, so I know that if I eat, uh, you know, um, uh, I, I, you know, some, some, some rice or yams, my blood sugar 40, uh, uh, an hour after my meal will be about 118, just kind of nudging up there. But if I eat a little plate of spaghetti, it'll be 160. So I know my body doesn't tolerate spaghetti. Now my spouse can eat a plate of spaghetti and the blood sugar goes up to, you know, 110. So everybody's different. So you can't say, well, you know, spaghetti is a bad food. It's a bad food for me, but not for my spouse. So uh, in terms of glucose, and you can go into, you know, I'm not having an argument right now about gluten and, and starch and carbohydrates all together. Just to, I just wanted to illustrate that, and there have been studies showing this over and over again, that different pairs of people will have different glucose tolerance levels for different foods, and they can be opposite. So there's a famous study showing taking two pairs of, a pair of people, giving them one meal that's a banana, and uh, uh the person A and the it go, the blood sugar goes way up with the banana, and person B the blood sugar is stable with that banana. They take the same two people, they give them a cookie. Um, patient A, their blood sugar is stable with that cookie, but this time patient subject B's uh, blood sugar with the cookie goes way up. So patient uh, subject B can tolerate bananas but not cookies, and it's the opposite for subject A. 
So, you know, again, there's no list of foods that are going to work. You really have to know your own body. And the way to know your own body is to measure your, uh, the effect of various foods and meals on, on your body. And then, of course, what you mix the food with will have an effect on how high the blood sugar goes. Uh, so, uh, you know, having a bare plate of noodles is going to make the blood sugar go up more than if you put some fat and protein uh, together with those uh, things. For me, I'm not so lucky. I love spaghetti, but even if I put, uh, you know, some nice meat sauce on it, that blood sugar spikes just goes way up, right up. So that's not a great food for me. Right. So, so you really have to, to, to know your body. And I do recommend for most of my patients, if they're able to, to get a home glucometer to prick their fingers. Rarely do I recommend a continuous glucose monitor. Um, that's a little uh, 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 much for most people at this point. I do recommend it sometimes, but uh, for most people, it's uh, the, the um, uh, finger prick uh, glucometer is much more more than adequate and will get the job done for them. Very, very nice. Oh, I'm sorry. And a few times a week? Is that what you suggest? So with my uh, patients at first, when they're first diagnosed, we do it every day okay. and we just find out and we move, we, you know, most, most people aren't between 79 and 83, which is kind of the, you know, sweet spot for most people. Um, so we gradually change their lifestyle to, to get things down to that level. And are there, and there, then you can, you can lighten up. You don't have to check every single day, but by that time people get pretty good at it and they uh, uh, really want to uh, uh, know. So they will, they will do it. I wanted to hear your opinion about estrogen receptor positive cancers and soy. I know so many people are afraid to eat whole, you know, foods and soy in whole food form. What do you say about that? That's a complicated issue and um, large studies in a population level, uh, it looks like probably soy is not harmful. It may be even helpful in, uh, uh, you know, in the general population of estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, but estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, for instance, I know you said tumors, but any, any, any tumor, you know, urine, ovaries, they're not the same between people. So people can have different versions of the estrogen receptor expressed on their cancers that respond differently than their neighbor, uh, breast cancer, estrogen receptor respond to soy. And there are other foods like, you know, other legumes like kidney beans. I mean, those things have phytoestrogens as well. And then there's the gut flora that determine how that phytoestrogen is metabolized, whether it's turned into an active form, uh, you know, and whether that active form is one that suppresses or increases growth for your tumor or, or for your neighbor's tumor, but not yours. It's a little more complicated than just saying, yep, soy is fine. Now, most doctors will say, yep, soy is fine. All right. And I would say that, yep, Soy is fine. If you have normal serving sizes, if maybe it's a couple times a week, you're not taking concentrated soy protein, like soy protein powder and mixing it up into smoothies and things like that. So you're getting a huge dose of uh, soy protein just in case your particular tumor isn't, and you haven't tested it most likely, isn't the kind that would benefit from soy and might be harmed from it. So for most people, it looks like soy is probably harmless and it may be beneficial, but the actual uh, way to tell that for any particular patient it does not exist at present easily. Okay. Thank you. Because there are so many mixed messages again about that. And a lot of, all right. they are all right for someone. Can you speak a little bit about fasting and cancer? Because I know there have been studies saying if you fast, the day before treatment and the day after your side effects will be less and, and the chemo will be more effective. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about fasting? So there's a large body of work, mostly in animals looking at fasting and cancer and uh, fasting uh, has a lot of different effects on cancer incidence in animals and cancer growth in animals and also on the efficacy of chemotherapy and other treatments on cancers uh, once they're established and are being treated. So I think that the uh, uh, most of the studies have been done um, out of the University of Southern California by a uh, professor, Walter Longo, Walter with a V, <coughs> excuse me. And uh, 
Uh, most of his work's been done in animals, but he's now uh, uh, gotten some good, interesting research done on uh, in humans and clinical uh, trials. And some of the um, uh, studies show that uh, fasting before chemotherapy, at least 24 hours, less than 24 hours before chemotherapy doesn't do the job. Um, and then continuing that fast for 48 hours, for, for a total of 48 hours or continuing uh, 24 more hours after your chemotherapy infusion. So the chemotherapy is in the middle after the first 24 hours of fasting, and then you continue another 24 hours for a total of 48 hours of fasting. It uh, decreases the uh, damage to white blood cells that we can measure on a test called the comet assay. So it's a DNA damage test. How that affects longevity in humans isn't really known, and uh, how that affects the efficacy of uh, treatment isn't really known um, in humans. In animals, however, the studies are really, really clear. Uh, that particular fasting schedule is particularly powerful for prolonging the animal's life and increasing the efficacy of uh, chemotherapy treatments. Interestingly, in humans, uh, 24 hours, when we looked, there was a study at USC, University of Southern California, looking at uh, different lengths of time. These weren't controlled trials, but they were interesting. They were kind of survey trials, uh, 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 surveying the, the idea. Uh, 24 hours wasn't enough. 24 hours did not have any particular beneficial effect on the patient. So if you can't fast for, you know, 48 hours, don't bother. Um, was the message from that. Um, 72 hours didn't have any more, uh, uh, didn't provide any more benefit than 48 hours. 48 hours was the sweet spot. And again, it was 24 hours before the infusion and 24 hours after the infusion. And that includes the infusion time. There's no eating during the infusion. So it's a 48 hour fast with the infusion in the middle and 24 is not enough. 72 was no better, maybe a little bit worse than 48. 48 hours seemed to be the sweet spot. So your patients that do that, you know, do they feel like really hungry or do they feel okay? You know, I know so many people are worried. Oh, I'm going through chemo. I need to eat. I need to build, have my strength. So uh, if you're uh, an experienced faster, uh, it will, 48 hours will be doable. The first 24 hours are when there's the most trouble with hunger and uh, you just have to expect to be hungry. Um, the second 24 hours are for most people a lot easier. And again, the more you've done it, the more you've actually conditioned your enzyme systems to be able to burn fat for energy. So what happens when you fast is that you use up all the glycogen or carbohydrates stored in your muscles and liver uh, over the first 12 to 24 hours for most people. And then after that, you start, that's all gone. So for fuel, you have to start dipping into your fat stores. That takes a certain amount of uh, new enzymes for most people. Most Americans eat all the time. They eat a lot of meals and they eat a lot of snacks. They don't go for more than two or three hours without eating something. And they never dip into their fat stores. So their bodies have become flabby in terms of being able to biochemically uh, induce and pro uh, promote and provide and upregulate the enzymes needed to dip into the fat stores. You need special kinds of, let's call them shovels to get into those fat deposits and shovel them in those calories into the bloodstream. If you never do that, you know, if you're metabolically lying on the couch, meaning you're eating a lot, you have a lot of snacks, uh, you, you subscribe to that, uh, you know, always keep something in your stomach idea, you will be pretty miserable the first time or two that you fast, but that is basically deconditioning. It's like taking somebody who's been lying on the couch and making them jog a mile. Yeah. They're going to be pretty miserable that first time. Um, and, uh, but, and after they get conditioned, uh, you know, after a couple of weeks, they'll be, they'll be pretty good at it and they'll, they'll be able to do that. So, um, uh, that is, uh, uh, you know, how, how well a patient feels during a fast depends on whether they've fasted before. Uh, the only way to get good at fasting is to fast. Uh, the better you get at fasting, the easier it will become. The first 24 hours, though, for most people are the hardest. So you will tell people before they even have treatment, try this out? I will. If there's time, um, we'll go ahead and uh, they can try a fast, uh, you know, 48-hour fast and see how they do. Um, a lot of people have done that, actually, for medical tests, you know, you you, you, you stop eating and, and get ready for your test. And then the nurse comes in and says, oh, you know, we're really sorry. <laughs> you know, the doctor's been delayed. So you're going to have to come back tomorrow morning. So you're, you're still going to continue this fast. And, and people will do that, uh, you know, uh, accidentally in that set scenario. So people have some experience sometimes in that way. Um, 
but yeah, we, we, uh, if we have time, we try a practice fast. If we don't, we just go ahead. Most patients are supremely motivated when a diagnosis of cancer comes along. Most people want to live and they want to do anything they can within reason to, to make the treatments work better and to have fewer side effects. So most people will, will uh, get through that first fast. And it's usually easier than they think it's going to be. Um, uh, but not always. Yeah. That's so true. What you say when, you know, obviously you're motivated to do anything you can to, to get better. Now, I just, I, I think, uh, oh, I was going to say that, uh, you know, people are afraid of fasting there. You know, I've, I've asked audiences when I've given talks, well, you know, how long can a person go uh, before they die without eating? You know, is it four days? And some people will raise their hand at four days. You know, is it 12 days? And more people raise their hand. 21 days. A lot of people raise their hand there. Actually, the longest fast in uh, uh, that's been recorded in the medical literature was uh, published in the 1970s. And a gentleman who was quite overweight to start. So, you know, you need to be super overweight if you're going to fast for a long, long time. But this gentleman weighed 480 pounds, I think, when he started, something like that. Um, and he fasted for over a year on no calories, just water. And he fasted for 382 days. And at the end of his fast, he weighed a normal 180 pounds. And uh, they checked on him five years later, he weighed 190 pounds. So he basically, he kept the weight off that he lost. But he was up and about. He wasn't lying down or anything like that. He was up doing his thing for this entire year. Um, his doctors made him take a vitamin pill uh, every day, a vitamin tablet. Uh, and that was it. He had water. And uh, uh, he had some salt, uh, I think a little potassium, uh, took some potassium uh, uh, once in a while. And that was it. And uh, he fasted for over a year. So I've never heard of that. That is unbelievable. Yeah, that's published in the medical literature. It's a a case. It was published in in Scotland, I think. Um, Yeah, so so fasting is is actually a good thing. I think fasting is necessary for health for everyone. Uh, If you don't fast once in a while, you will not be as healthy as you, you could be. Um, you don't have to go on, you know, long, long fasts, but, uh, you know, uh, a day or two a month and maybe three to five days once a year or so is probably a good schedule for healthy people. Oh, great. And then you also, I remember you talking about intermittent fasting, you know, even if it's 13 hours that that's overnight fasting. Absolutely. So I'm not talking about overnight fasting in the previous uh, few minutes that we've been talking. I'm talking about several days. And uh, so intermittent fasting, that's overnight fasting for most people. Um, 13 hours minimum for for everyone is probably what's a a good idea for health. Looks like 12 hours is not enough. Uh, So so people will say, well, I fast almost 12 hours every night. I said, well, try to bump that up then to 13, because that seems to be between 12 and 13 hours seems to be where most people will kind of use up their the glycogen stores, the glucose stored in their body and dip into a little bit of fat burning, um, also called ketosis. And that little bit of fat burning every day may be enough to keep us uh, uh, pretty healthy. Yeah, and again, it's different for different people, how long to go, but 13 hours is the minimum for pretty much everyone. Yeah, because I had a bowel resection because of my cancer and I started intermittent fast, intermittent fasting. I'm probably about a year, year and a half, maybe two years. I can't remember, but I feel like it helps my digestive system a lot. Do you, I don't know if, if that's proven, but it, it definitely helps me. So, you know, it will, it will, then it helps you. Um, uh, you know, will it help somebody else? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, you know, if, if someone doesn't have digestive problems, will it fast overnight fast still be a good idea for them? Yes. One of the main things it does is, is uh, tone the metabolic system, uh, the ways that we use uh, energy from food, calories from food, which again are protein, carbohydrate, and fat. So that's the, the major purpose of uh, uh, overnight fasting and longer fasts is to tone, make fit, condition our metabolic uh, systems. Just to wrap up, I know we talked about other things we can do like sauna bathing. Um, you mentioned cold therapy and hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Can you just briefly tell us about the, you know, benefits of those things? Sure. And we should talk about exercise too. So oh, yes. in that, uh, because they're, they're kind of what we're doing with all of those is trying to condition the mitochondria and you want to condition them so that they use oxygen normally um, and uh, use glucose normally, um, use the pieces of glucose that are produced for them in the, in the cytosol of the cell. 
um, and uh, don't shuttle a lot of uh, building blocks toward a cancerous process and build build a lot of cancer cells. So you want to tone the mitochondria. So so uh, sauna bathing, um, not specifically for cancer, but just in general, seems to be associated in Finnish studies with, uh, as in Finland, with longevity, especially um, uh, and a decrease in all-cause mortality. So uh, and it's there's a dose dependence uh, in this relationship, which suggests causality. Um, you remember, association does not necessarily mean causality. But if there's a dose dependence relationship, in other words, if one gets bigger as the other gets bigger, there's more likely to be a causal relationship between the two. So there is a dose dependence relationship between sauna bathing times per week and longevity. So people who sauna bathe seven days a week live longer than those who uh, sauna bathe four to three times a week. And those people live longer than those who sauna bathe one time a week, who live longer than those who sauna bathe less than one time a week, et cetera. So sauna bathing is great. The secret sauce to sauna bathing, at least in Finland, is likely the fact that they also couple that with cold plunges. So they jump into an icy whatever they have there, river, ocean, um, and uh, right after their sauna. And then they stay in the cold water, you know, for, you know, a few minutes. And then they get back out and uh, rest and for a few minutes and then go back in the sauna and repeat the cycle over a period of an hour or so. So um, uh, the cold exposure is part of the secret sauce of uh, the health benefits of sauna bathing. So I recommend that. A cold plunge is better than a shower. A shower doesn't cool off the skin or the body as much as actually immersing the body in, in water and getting the head under the water for a few seconds, not, not for very long. That's what I was going to ask you. How long do you, are you supposed to be in both the sauna and the... So again, it's it's not it's not about time. It's about uh, you know whether you've gotten your body temperature up to say 101 degrees or not. So you need to have a really hot sauna to do that. I prefer an ordinary, old-fashioned Finnish sauna with a basket of hot rocks. I'm not a big fan of infrared saunas. I know a lot of people are, and that's fine. Um, I don't like them because they tend not to get very hot. I like my sauna to be 180 degrees, six inches from the ceiling. And um, uh, I like to be up on a high bench in the sauna, not down on one of the low benches where it's 50 degrees cooler. So the faster your body heats up, apparently the stronger the salutary, the health effect too. So sitting in an infrared sauna for 45 minutes is may not be, and, and again, this is uh, probably not that big a deal, but it, it, you know, it looks like it may not be as effective as getting into a finished sauna at 180 degrees and having to get out in five to 10 minutes because you're just so hot and then jumping into a nice cold uh, body of water. Great. Now, during chemotherapy, I mean, is it okay to, to do these things? Yeah, I mean, if you're used to your body, and uh, yes, it's certainly okay to do those things uh, when you're in chemotherapy. And it's important to do a lot of these things, uh, you know, to keep exercising during chemotherapy. Um, you know, people who exercise during chemotherapy, I don't mean like literally while the IV pole is next to them, um, but uh, people who exercise while they're going through chemotherapy, keep up there three times a week and do hard exercise. This isn't just walking around the mall. This is, you know, weightlifting, aerobics, uh, jogging, those kinds of things live longer and have better results in terms of their cancer going away than people who don't exercise during chemotherapy. They also have more energy. So cancer fatigue uh, and also the heart damage due to certain drugs. Chemotherapy drugs is lessened in people who exercise hard during chemotherapy. So Exercise is part of, of cancer treatment in our practice. I mean, it's it's what you do here. Exercise is as important as anything else in terms of your cancer treatment. And if you're not exercising, you're kind of leaving, you know, a lot of good on the table that might get you over the hump and into the cured section of things. I'm so glad you said this because so many people say, I don't feel good. I have no energy. I can't exercise. So, you know, it, it's just so important to to try to get out there and even take a brisk walk if you could, you know? So I tell patients that exercise turns your uh, blood into chemotherapy and uh, that kills cancer cells. And, and there was an interesting study published a couple of months ago. Uh, it was uh, this, the researchers studied uh, sedentary college students. And I think there are 10 or 20 of them. They took a, a drop of blood from each of these sedentary college students and, and put them on cancer cell cultures. And the cancer cell cultures 
kept going. They didn't die. They didn't do anything. Nothing, nothing happened when they were exposed to the blood of these sedentary college students. Then those same college students were put through a 12 or 16 week high intensity exercise program. I think they exercised three times a week and they did high intensity interval training, I believe. Um, and then at the end of the experimental period, several months later, they took blood again from those students and they dropped it on the uh, uh, cancer cell cultures and the cancer cells died. So what happened was becoming fit turned these sedentary college students' cancer, uh, blood into an anti-cancer drug. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these students didn't have cancer and this was, a you know, an ex vivo or preclinical trial. Uh, it wasn't in patients, but uh, we have plenty of evidence, even randomized controlled trials uh, showing that cancer patients who exercise vigorously three times a week for 40 minutes during their chemotherapy months uh, have a better outcome in terms of cancer survival. So if that's not convincing everyone, <laughs> make sure you exercise. So now we're going to get into the random round questions. So are you ready? I'm ready. Fill in the blank. Freedom to you is? Oh, definitely having control of my time and geography. The last show you binged and loved? I think I liked Madam Secretary. When you're feeling afraid, what do you do? I feel sorry for myself. (laughs) Yeah. Love it. (laughs) We're all entitled a little bit, right? If you could have a one-hour discussion with someone past or present, who would it be and why? Oh, gosh. Well, I do that a lot. I, that's, uh, that's, uh, for me, that's reading. So yeah, I can have a discussion with pretty much anyone I want uh, uh, just by reading something that they've written. And I, I really uh, love books, and I love to get into the minds of uh, people who have interesting thoughts. And uh, so, so that, that would be how I would do that. Um, let's see. Great. Any particular book? I know there's probably many. So, um, yes, I like an author named, uh, Vaslav Smil, uh, and, uh, he writes books, uh, uh, there's a, uh, he writes books on energy. Um, he wrote a really recent, his most recent book was on, uh, named growth. And I find his ideas fascinating. They're basically lists um, with a little bit of not much embellishment, uh, but he, he lines up his lists in interesting ways. And I find the books just fascinating. And um, so that's one of my favorite authors. And what is your favorite go-to snack? At the moment, it's been uh, xylitol gum. My dentist told me that's good for my teeth. So at the moment, it's xylitol gum. That's not very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> What's one simple thing that brings you joy? I love listening to music. And what's your favorite form of exercise? Right at the moment, I'm, I'm doing CrossFit. I've done that for about five years. Um, I'm going to be taking some sculling lessons this weekend. And I really um, am looking into to shuffle dance. I've been trying to learn some shuffle dance moves and because um, uh, I want to impress my friends if I ever uh, go to a party. So I'm trying oh. to figure out shuffle dance moves. How fun. <laughs> really awful. Really awful. Uh, so I will amuse <laughs> my friends. They'll be laughing at me. I can guarantee it. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. But now what is sculling? Uh, rowing backwards. Oh. <laughs> With those long skinny boats. Long oh. skinny boats. It's not a big deal out here in Oregon. Um, gotcha. uh, you know, it's bigger on the East Coast. It's not really been in my radar, but some uh, a friend who's really interested in it tried to put together a class and and I thought, well, I'll have more out. I'll, I'll go to this class. And, and it was really fun. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take a few lessons. Oh, that's great. And what's one thing you're really grateful for in your life right now? Oh, um, right now we have uh, clear uh, skies and sweet smelling air here in Oregon. And for the last few summers, we've not had that. We've had horrible, smoky, terrible forest fire air. So Every day that we can go out and just take a deep breath without coughing is fantastic. So oh, that's nice. Yes. And finally, what is the best way to reach you? Oh, um, you can go to my website, which is Oregon, as in the state of Oregon. It's Oregon I.O. as in Oregon Integrative Oncology. So it's OregonIO.com. And on there are phone numbers and email addresses and anything you want to, to get a hold of me. Perfect. 
Well, thank you so, so much, Dr. Lamont. I could talk to you for hours, pick your brain. It was so great. And I really appreciate your time. You're welcome. It was fun. Thank you for having me, Haley. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so will really help this podcast get noticed and will help us to inspire more people. And remember, the sky is the limit when you take your power back when it comes to your health. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.